0: Right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 through 28. You'll remember last week as we moved into this section, um, we looked at what the writer said back in chapter 5 and how he wanted to write to them about Melchizedek, hard, things hard to explain. He says, but you're not ready for it. And then he spends about a chapter and a half kind of awakening them, getting them to listen up, maybe challenging them a little bit with the idea that you're not ready kind of like, you're not, you can't handle this. It's like, oh yeah, I think I can handle it. Give it to me. And so he finally comes into chapter seven and begins to talk about Melchizedek. And the whole point of what we're reading here is that this priest, Jesus, who's come according to the order of Melchizedek, is better than the Aaronic priest. Why would you go back into the law? Why would you go back to the temple when you have this amazing priest named Jesus who takes care of of your every need. He's better, the covenant he presides over is better, so why would you go back? So that's, the, that's kind of where we're headed with this. Um, so let's go ahead and, and read there in verses 18 and 19. Now, four major points we're gonna make um, through this section of scripture. We're gonna move kind of quickly. Um, they're pretty easy points, really, to, to comprehend. And I, I hope that just the simplicity of opening the word of God Studying the word of God and then responding to the word of God will just bring such a joy and a fullness to all of our hearts. May the Lord do that. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness, an unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is this bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So he's contrasting these covenants. The title is A Better Covenant, but the point that we want to make here, first major point is, um, this covenant is better because it brings us near, and add this, and gives hope. It's a better it's better because it brings us near and gives hope. Now he begins there in verse 18, talking about the former covenant, which will be the law of Moses, the old covenant. The covenant that the the priests of Aaron ministered to. So his evaluation of it is that this was weak and it was unprofitable. And so this is why it's been annulled. This is why it's been put away because what the law of Moses did was not to make us perfect. There was a weakness in it. And so he states this quite clearly. And of course by saying that it's weak, he's not saying that it's evil. He's just saying what we need, that covenant could not do. We needed a better covenant. We needed a better priesthood, and that is found in the new covenant and is found in the person of Jesus. The early church came to the conclusion officially in Acts chapter 15 that this new covenant that Jesus ushered in is superseded, and it did, and it annulled the old covenant. And I want to read to you. Um, Just a portion of this, it's called the Jerusalem Council, but it's when the church got together and began to say, "What we got the old covenant, we have this new work that the Lord's doing, what do we do? So let me read to you, verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by circumcision, By keeping the law? No. By what? By faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So Peter stands up, he says, wait a minute, you're wanting to have them circumcised? You're wanting to make them keep the law and the feast and the festivals and and, and live in this prescribed manner? Let's think about this for a second. Do you remember how God used me? And, And you can read about this in Acts chapter 10, and then he gives an explanation in chapter 11. Now he's giving another explanation of it. So a significant event. But this is when Peter was started out in Joppa, at the house of Simon the Tanner and he has a vision and he sees this big sheet comes down and there's all of these unclean animals in this sheet and the Lord says to him, what? Rise, kill, and eat. And It happens three times because Peter says, no way. I'm not gonna do that. I've never had any of this kind of food. I'm not gonna eat that kind of food. And then he's told that some people are coming, some Gentiles are coming to meet him and that he should go with them. So they arrive, and he travels um, up north, not far, but just right up the coast, and he comes to Caesarea. When he comes to Caesarea, he comes into the house of a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, not just a Gentile, a soldier, and so as he comes in, um, he he says, listen, I, I was told to ask for you. He says, well, an angel of the Lord told me that I should come with you. So they're in this meeting and said, so, well, we want to hear about Jesus. So Peter begins to preach the message. And while he's preaching, the holy, they believe in their hearts. So as they're listening, they come to a saving faith. And that saving faith is made known because the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And they begin to prophesy and they begin to speak in tongues. And this was a clear indication that that's just like the experience that had happened to Peter and his 120 Jewish friends, brothers and sisters, in Acts chapter 2, when the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit. So they had this undeniable experience with the Spirit of God that was prophesied by Joel, by John the Baptist, and by Jesus. And they experienced that in Acts chapter 2. Now in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles, who are not circumcised, They're not keeping kosher laws. They're not keeping the law of Moses. They have the same experience. But notice what uh, uh, Peter says. I read it, Acts uh, chapter 15. I'll read it again, verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Kind of reversed there, isn't it? You would almost expect to say, we believe that they will be saved in the same manner as us. But these were Jews who had been circumcised and had kept the law. And so lest they think that that's the way you receive the spirit, he reverses the order and says, we get to be saved in the same manner as they do. That is, apart from the law, That is apart from circumcision and it is through the grace of God in faith. So it's that last little turn there in verse 11 is quite significant because nobody would have expected him to say, he said, but they got saved apart from the law. They got saved apart from circumcision. So we get to get saved just like they do through faith. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This covenant, old covenant, the law of Moses was annulled. And a new one has come in. So a couple more verses uh, before we move on to the, the idea of this new covenant and what it brings. Um, three more verses. Galatians 3 verses 23 through 25. says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. That old covenant. Kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Did did the law have a purpose? Yeah. It was teaching us, you need somebody to save you because you can't do it on your own. That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Those that would want to try and go back to the law have not read the New Testament. I mean, you, you can't read the book of Hebrews and come to this conclusion. You cannot read Galatians and come to that conclusion. You cannot read the book of Romans and come to that conclusion. It is so clear that this was a covenant that had its beginning on a date and it ended on a date, and that is at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the new covenant came in. Galatians 4:9. But now after those, excuse me, but, at, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? That's his description of the law. So those that want to go back to the law, they want to impose these dietary laws and these feasts in these days, and they say you must do this and you must be circumcised. The Bible calls this a weak and beggarly system. Now, is it evil? It is not evil. It served the exact purpose That God wanted it to. It foreshadowed the coming of Christ. It provided a a beautiful way to come and worship the Lord. With all the ceremonies. And all of these prefigurings of Christ. But what it did, it was a reminder, we are sinners. And we have to continually sacrifice. And so the law was saying, you cannot be justified through this law. What what does the Bible say? If you're going to keep the law, how much of the law do you have to keep to be justified? The whole law, 632 commandments. You don't even know what they are. I don't even know what they are. I mean, if if you're saying you want to keep the law, I think you ought to know what those 632 are. So that you don't mess up. And then if you mess up, you're out. Cursed is the one who does not continue in the things written in the law, right? There's a curse that's associated with it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, though, tells us the good news. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you can't be made righteous through the law. You're made righteous through Jesus Christ and faith in him. Now, what we read is, as we continue in verses 18 and 19, um, so it makes nothing perfect, right? Um, Jesus makes us perfect. He says, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This is what Jesus does. So the old covenant is weak and beggarly, unprofitable. The new covenant, it gives us hope and it draws us near to God. A better hope. We know in Jesus Christ, and we have this hope that we've been saved and that our sins are forgiven. And that when we die in this life, or Jesus comes for us, whichever the case may be, that we are going to be immediately in the presence of the Lord, and we will be accepted there. That I am, my hope is this, I I certainly am to follow the Lord. Be holy, for I am holy. So it's not that, you know, we begin to live however we want to. God has always called us to walk in holiness. But you see, I have this certainty that it's not dependent upon my character. It's not dependent upon my perfection, now, some of you, you, you maybe are walking in so much condemnation right now. Now, listen, if you've sinned and you're in rebellion, be convicted and repent, but don't be condemned. The Lord doesn't want you to be condemned. You may be saying, "That's no, too late. I, man, with what I did this past week, this past month, this past year, since being saved, I just, I mean, I come to church, but I have zero expectation that God will ever accept me. Wait a minute. You're to have a, this hope. And the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so be trusting. So you may, your hope could be uh, diminished by some of your own failures. But understand that it is Christ's righteousness that makes you perfect in the presence of the Lord. That's not an excuse to go sin. If you hear that and you think, yeah, right on, I get to go sin. You didn't even hear a word that the Bible has to say. If you can hear that you are made righteous through Jesus Christ and you cannot be made righteous on your own and you hear that, you think, great, I'm going to go sin now. You're not saved. I'm just telling you because that's not what the Spirit of God works in any believer's heart. A believer can be humbled and broken through their sin, but a believer does not say, I want to just keep on sinning. And if Jesus died on the cross for my sins, then perfect. No, that's what unbelievers say. That's what people who want to twist the word of God say, says. But a true believer has the spirit of God within them yearning to be made more like Jesus in this present life. And again, we are all a work in progress. But you know another thing that I think diminishes this hope, this expectation? And this is, this is my opinion, okay? I think, I think it's right, but this is, this is my opinion. I think we live at a time and we live in a country where we have so much stuff. That Do, do we really need to long for heaven? The answer is yes. But we have so much stuff that brings us comfort. We have so many things that can bring us pleasure. We have so much that we have that, it, that we can get just kind of satiated with the abundance. And we don't long for the things of the Lord. Now listen, if the Lord has, now you might say, well, it's not me. That might be that guy across the room, but that's not me. Well, if you compare us, all of us, to world history and the abundance we have, we have more than at any other time in the history of the world. And even to this day, we have so much. There is a a story told, and I don't. I wish I had got the quote, but um, this my wife Rebecca. She read this to me. She's reading this book about all these Puritans and their writings. And this one, I think, as the story goes, this one Puritan man went, and he was staying at a house of a very wealthy believer. And as he came in, the house was stunning to look at from the distance. You came in, everything was a beautiful piece of furniture. Beautiful, you know, China and all the finest of everything. Now, the person that had it, they're a believer. But the the Puritan begins to write and says, I don't know how anybody could long for heaven when you are surrounded by so much comfort and so much beauty. And I think there is a place for us to, to be warned I'm not, I'm not going to say anything other than we need to be warned that in the abundance of stuff around our life that we don't let that somehow begin to diminish the hope we should have in one day being in the presence of the Lord. And if you're not longing for heaven, if I'm getting distracted by things and you're getting distracted by things and we have so we just we got to we got to make a correction here. We don't want the blessings of the Lord to cause us to no longer remember the Lord. And actually, in Deuteronomy, um, the Lord warns the nation of Israel, as you get ready to come into the promised land and you have this land flowing with milk and honey, don't forget where it came from. And we need to remember, if you're blessed, and remember where it came from. But don't let it steal the hope of your salvation. May that be constant. May that be stirred up in our hearts. So, yeah, we have this better covenant that brings, gives us hope, and it also brings us near to God. The, the law was a whole system. Now, in fairness, I think we could just say it was all about barriers and how the, the worshiper could only come so far. And that's true. But if we remember, they were a, a nation of slaves in Egypt. And they didn't have any prescribed manner on how to come to the Lord. But then the law of Moses came. And they built a tabernacle. And they had an order of priests. And there was ways of sacrifices. You're to bring this sacrifice, this animal, and this incense. And and it was a whole system that heaven gave to them. It was a blessing. And they could know that as they came to God, they were to come to God in this prescribed manner. But it couldn't bring them near to the Lord. It, it, it was moving in that direction, but as they came close to the Lord, there were some physical reminders that said, you can only go so far. For example, if you're a woman, you could go to the court of the women, but you weren't going to go up to the altar. right? This was the men would bring the, the sacrifices there. And if you, were, if you were coming and you were... Um, are going to be there? It would be a priest from Aaron that would be offering the sacrifice. And then it would be the high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies. If you're a Gentile, there, there was a, a plaque that was put up in the temple that said, any Gentile passing beyond this point will be put to death. There, there were warnings that said you can only come so far. F.F. Bruce puts it like this. The whole apparatus of worship associated with that ritual and priesthood was calculated rather to keep people at a distance from God than to bring them near. But the hope set before us in the gospel is better because it accomplishes this very thing which was impossible under the old ceremonial. It enables Christians to draw near to God. We talked about it last week, but when Jesus hung and died on the cross, his body was ripped in two, but the veil in the temple was ripped in two, indicating that the way into the presence of God was now available. We could draw near. So if you are one of these Hebrews that's contemplating going back to the temple and longing for the Aaronic priesthood, the point is, wait a minute, they couldn't bring you near. You could only come so far. But, the, but Jesus, he brings you near and he gives you a hope that you are right in right standing with God. The second uh, major point comes in verses 20 through 22, and this is a better covenant by reason of oath. It says, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests with an oath, but he with an oath by whom by, by whom said of him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest. So here's the oath: You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So what is this saying here? Inasmuch <laughs> as he made, was not made a priest without an oath, for they had become priests without an oath. What, what's saying? Well, under the law, the commandment was given to Moses to tell the sons of Aaron, you are the priests. They were fulfilling that role in that that ministry by commandment. They were commanded to do this. Now, it was a blessing and it was a privilege, but it was a commandment. God didn't give them a promise and an oath. He gave them a commandment. But to Jesus, he has this oath that we just read there in Psalm 110, verse 4, Um, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. So he gave an oath. The idea is the commandment is good, but the promise with oath is better. And Jesus comes into ministry with both the promise and an oath. And he serves in this way. So his priesthood is declared to be better. verses 23 through 25. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it's a better covenant because of the hope and because we're brought near. It's a better covenant because of the oath that's been made and it's better because it's unchanging. Now think, think on this. It's, it's a priest. He's a priest forever. How is that better than the Aaronic priesthood that was not forever? It works like this. You have the first high priest who was Aaron. And Aaron was a good high priest. But he made some mistakes, didn't he? I mean, like his big blunder was the golden calf, right? He made the golden calf and they all worshipped. And then when he was challenged on it, he says, I don't know how this happened. I got some gold, threw it in the fire, and this thing came out. And then there was this wild party. I, I apologize, but it's not my fault. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, quite a, that's probably the worst lie in the history of lies, by the way. But that's what he said. But what kept him out of the promised land was not making the golden calf, was it? You know what kept him out of the promised land? The same thing that kept Moses out of the promised land when they struck the rock twice. Now, we'll be getting to that in our study on Wednesday nights as we go through uh, Numbers and actually in our next study. So he, he had his mistakes. And then, then we read that he came to the end of his life and um, they took him up on a mountain. He passed away. They took off his priestly vestments and they placed him on his son, Eleazar. Why? Because he is not forever. He was a man and he died. And good news, Eleazar was a good guy. And then Eleazar's son Phineas, he ended up taking on the priesthood. And so Josephus, a, a secular Jewish historian, um, ancient historian, wrote and said that there were 83 high priests who officiated from Aaron to the fall in 70 AD. Now that's not scripture, but that gives you a pretty good idea. It was one after another after another. Eighty-three men served as high priests. Guess how many high priests you're going to have in the order of Melchizedek? One. You're going to have one. And he's the best one. And he is the one that's always looking out after you. You know... You could have been at a time when you had Aaron's, like, oh, he's a good guy. I mean, already made some mistakes, but he was a good guy. And then, well, Eleazar seems good, and you could feel all right about it. And Phineas comes, and you could feel pretty good about it. But what if you were worshiping at a time when Eli, the high priest, and his sons were in order, the next in order to take over. And these guys were, they were terrible. They were womanizing. They were seducing ladies when they came to worship the Lord at the temple or at the tabernacle, they, when, when they came with their offerings, they were ripping the people off. They were taking their best. And, saying, and then we read in Scripture that people didn't even want to go and worship the Lord anymore because of these guys. So you might be thinking, man, I can't wait for these guys to die. When they're dead, maybe we'll get a better high priest because these guys are a nightmare. And so you would have these different feelings, right? I don't want this guy to go because he's been so good. He's been so faithful. Or maybe you're like, yeah, but the next guy, I think, I think it's going to be better under him. But that never enters in with Jesus. Jesus, for all of us in here, we've only ever had, in, in Christ, we've only ever had, or in faith, have only ever had one high priest, and his name is Jesus. And when you go to heaven, the first person you're going to see is your high priest, Jesus. Jesus. And a million years into eternity, Jesus is still going to be serving you and ministering to you as a high priest. So it's a better order because it doesn't change. When you have the best one that there could be doing it, you don't want that to change. And that's who Jesus is. He is that faithful high priest. In verse 25 it says, "Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him." First of all, let's just talk about this simple point. How do you come to God? You've got to come to God through him. You've got to come to God through Jesus. There is, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right? And you can't come to the Father any other way except through me. If you want to come to God, you must come through me. He is the second person of the Godhead. So you've got to come through Jesus. You've got to to put your faith and trust in him. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you you do not have a relationship with God. You may have thoughts of God, you may long for God, but the only way you're ever going to come near to God is by coming to Jesus Christ. He's it, he's the only way. And so you must come through him. But when you come to him, we read here, he is able to save to the uttermost. The idea of the word uttermost is, and I'm just gonna quote, it includes the idea of completeness and totality. But it also has a connotation of time. So maybe the word finally. So there's, it's this sense of it has finally come to pass in its completeness, in its totality, and the, this salvation. Well, it came in its totality in Jesus, but where did it begin? If it finally came, where did it come from? Well, the promise of salvation goes all the way back to the Old Testament, goes all the way to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God gave this promise. He says, I, you know, essentially, we you know, there's not a lot there in that promise, but we know what it means as we go through. I will redeem you from the curse through the seed of the woman. He will destroy Satan. And of course, the seed is Jesus. So the promise goes all the way back to Genesis and you have these foreshadowings, even... Even there in the garden, God sacrificed the animals to cover them and to cover their nakedness. You had the foreshadowing of of lambs that were going to be put to death, the Lamb of God. And then you have all the sacrifices that were made every day in the tabernacle. Animals were being put to death for sin. It was foreshadowing and looking forward, but, but it didn't complete. It didn't save to the uttermost. There was still more sacrifices that needed to be offered up. But Jesus is able to save completely and totally. And I think this is how it so practically applies to our lives. You may be thinking, yeah, but not me. Not me. I mean, you know, He he might save everybody, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the thoughts I have had in my head. You don't know the things I've engaged in. Nobody on this planet knows. Jesus knows. The Lord knows everything that you ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. He knows it completely, and he is able to save you totally, completely. Not like partially, not mostly. You are saved to the uttermost. Uh, Complete and total salvation. What did Jesus say when he hung upon the cross? It is finished. Saving of mankind is completely done. So although you may be a sinner, and maybe, yeah, maybe if you were to share, some of us would be shocked. Some others would be like, yeah, that's not so much. You should hear what my life used to be like. And and so maybe you feel like that and that you can't come. Hey, the Lord is able and he has completely saved you. Now you got to come to him. You got to receive this salvation. He's done the work to save you is probably a better way to say, but you got to come and receive this. What are you, what's keeping you back from coming? There is no good reason to not follow Jesus Christ today. He is the high priest who has come, who gives you hope, who brings you near to God. He's the only one that can bring you near to God. And he can completely and totally save you no matter what your life looks like. You know, there's this picture we have of sin in the, in the Gospels. And that's that of leprosy, the disease of leprosy. And leprosy got people excluded from community. They couldn't be a part of the family gatherings and all the rest. And, you know, back in that day, they would have to announce they were unclean. If they were coming upon a group of people, they would have to begin to yell out, unclean. How humiliating. But it was for the health. I mean, so nobody else would contract this disease. And yet... These people were avoided and not touched but when Jesus saw them he would go up to them and he'd heal them and he would say be cleansed and they were cleansed completely and totally. Actually on one occasion he healed a group of them and it says and as, he told them to go to the priest he says and as they were traveling they began to be healed. Could you imagine what that little journey must have looked like? Hey, I can feel my fingers again and look at the skin and they began there's This is a a slow rolling miracle of them being changed. Well, one of them was a Gentile and he comes back to Jesus to say thank you, probably because he couldn't go to the temple. And so he comes back to him to thank him. See, that's a picture. You may feel like the Lord would want nothing to do with you because of your sin. Hey, Jesus touched the lepers when nobody else would and he's willing to receive you And he died for your sin. So there is no reason to not come to him. The last point is found in verses 26 through 28. And that is, this is a better covenant because he is sinless. Now he makes us perfect, right? We receive the righteousness of God. But this priest, we're going to read, he is without sin. Which is, again, in contrast to the sons of Aaron. Let's read it. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, right, the order of Melchizedek, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. We already talked about it. Aaron was imperfect. He, he, he sinned. Eleazar, Phinehas, Eli, his sons, these were sinners. And what they had to do when they would come to the temple, they would have to first offer up a sacrifice to kill an animal for their, and cover their own sin. And then upon covering their own sin, then they could mediate on your behalf, the nation of Israel's behalf, before the Lord and offer up other sacrifices. But Jesus doesn't have to do that because he is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. So there is a weakness, both in the timing of the Aaronic priesthood. There is a weakness in what it could accomplish. There is a weakness in the men who offered it up. It was a weakness in that they served under the commandment, but not with the Lord, right? It was a promise and an oath. It was a sinless uh, mediator, a priest. And this is what the Lord is able to do. Jesus did not have to make an offering for himself. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus was not only the priest, but he also was the sacrifice, now the sons of Aaron, they would take the animals, the lamb, and they would sacrifice him. But Jesus was both the priest and he was the sacrifice. Look at verse 27 again, that last phrase of verse 27. It says, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He offered up himself. No, he was arrested. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, this is how the arrest came. We're here to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, I am. And you know what happens to everybody who came to arrest them? They all fell down backwards. They're in the presence of God. They dust themselves off. off. They get back up and they say, again, we're here to pick up Jesus. And he says, I am. And they all fell down. This is how they arrested. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. He willingly went to the cross. And so he offered up himself. He was the Lamb of God. He was the priest of God, but he was also the Lamb of God. And he was sinless, and he was our substitute as he hung upon the cross. You've got to come to Jesus if you want to have eternal life. He is the sacrifice, and he is the priest. And you can't find it anywhere else. I'm a pretty good person. That's not what it takes to get into heaven. You've got to be a perfect person to get into heaven, which counts us all out unless we come through Jesus. Because if we come through Jesus, he forgives us and he gives us his righteousness. That is transferred, not will be. If you're a Christian, his righteousness has already been transferred to you. Now, listen, sanctification, we're a work in progress, right? Right? The Lord is still working in our lives. But our standing before God is that we are righteous. How righteous? Just like Jesus. That's how righteous you are. And that's what you have to have. That level of righteousness to get into heaven. That's why the law was weak. But faith is not weak. Faith grants that to us. And we are able to be perfected. So the last phrase of verse 28, it says... Uh, this came after the law, right? The word of the oath came after the law. Appoints the son who's been perfected forever. So not only was he perfect in his life, he's, he's the perfect eternal one. And this is who they were thinking about giving up. This is who they were thinking about walking away from. So it's a strong call to say, keep your eyes on Jesus. And look nowhere else for salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this salvation that we have in your son, that he brings us near. He gives us a living hope, that he changes not. He will always be our faithful high priest. He is sinless, and he is a sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this. I spoke about it a couple of times while we were going through this message, if you need to come to Jesus, you've never professed him as Lord and Savior, you never confessed that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, right where you sit, quietly in your own heart, you can call out to the Lord and he will hear you and he will forgive you. If you haven't done that, you've got to do that. Why would you not do that? Why would you not come to Jesus who's made such a sacrifice for you? He died for you. Who else would do that for you? Who else would love you like that? Who else would promise you eternal life? It is Jesus and him alone. Come to him. If you have come to him, I pray that that hope is alive in your heart this morning. The hope of your salvation is something that just burns brightly.